Where leaders go, learning follows. At Harvard Business School, we offer in-person and virtual executive education programs on a broad range of business topics. Each program addresses real-world challenges and is taught by our world-renowned faculty. Join an exceptional peer group. Sharpen your leadership skills. Advance your career. It's your time. Go. To apply, visit hbs.me slash go. That's hbs.me slash go. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. Today is August the 18th, and my guest is Grant Taylor. Grant is the founder and CEO of Quotanda, a company that is digitizing financial aid for educational institutions and students. Grant, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Yeah, great to be here. What would you like listeners to know about you? I'm an American entrepreneur. I went to business school in Spain at IESE in Barcelona, set up Quotanda originally in Spain, and then expanded into Mexico after a pivot in 2015. Initially, we started out as a lending business. We borrowed debt from alumni to invest in students at IESE Business School. I mean, we did that for a couple of years, but felt that we could have a larger impact if we focused on providing the infrastructure for student lending, automated, white label, multilingual, multi-currency loan origination and servicing for any type of school, foundation, government, or financial institution any, anywhere. And then, yeah, I, my co-founder is Spanish, so he's running the European operations, and I moved to Mexico City, actually, to set up the business in the Americas. Why did you found Quotanda? I saw a problem among my classmates at IESE Business School, and I thought it was a common problem at schools around the world, and that is lack of education financing being a big barrier to education, both for students that are interested in attending school and for students that are in school and realize that the funds that they had saved up might might not be sufficient. And yeah, at, at IESC Business School, I saw students that had jobs at McKinsey and Amazon and uh, were li living off of rice and beans because um, they couldn't get a loan to, to help cover some of their living expenses. And I just thought, you know, I'd worked in fund of hedge funds before business school and thought I could set up a, an entity that would help solve that problem. And then once we got into it, we realized that the problem was much larger than we had originally realized and that, that it was something that was actually a much bigger problem for uh, people from lower income backgrounds. And that was why we pivoted to focusing on the infrastructure versus the lending. From a tertiary education perspective, so anything beyond high school, lack of education financing is the top reason that people don't go and the primary reason that people drop out. Um, and that's on a global basis. In the U.S., we are fortunate to have the federal government student loan program. And obviously, many European countries and other countries around the world have great public school offerings. But for the majority of the world, those options are not available. So take Mexico, for example, nearly 80% of the country does not study anything beyond high school, in large part, not because they're not capable 
or they didn't have necessarily the primary education to study beyond high school. It's just a cost issue and also a time issue, right? You're talking typical undergraduate degree, four, four years. If you're required to help your family cover basic living expenses and uh, needing to work, that's just not possible for most people to sacrifice that amount of time and to find the funds to be able to afford it. And we've been really more focused on high return on investment, short-term courses. So I think coding boot camps are a great example, but there are many others, data science, AI, user experience and design, project management, et cetera, et cetera, that within a few months, you can get a very marketable skill. In the US, the average salaries for a student graduating from a coding boot camp is like $75,000. In Mexico, it's a multiple of what people in call centers are earning. It's $12,000 a year instead of a, a, literally a fraction of that. Some of the students that we meet coming out of call centers have been earning $250 a month. So if they can take a coding boot camp in three or four months, and then get a job paying them $1,000 a month, that's a massive change in their lives and often in their families. So that's not only funding or giving access to existing educational institutions, traditional tertiary education, but it's also directing people towards alternative parts to education that gives them skills and lend them in the job markets faster. Absolutely. And I guess when we started, coding boot camps weren't, or boot camps in general, weren't really to, to the scale that they are now. And definitely our focus is more in that direction. But we do work with universities. For instance, Asade, which is a top school in Spain, a university, it's Ramon Joy University, and we power an income share agreement program for them, which helps them essentially expand access to their university program without having to really exclusively re rely on scholarships. But yeah, we do both. It's, it spans the gamut, but definitely we are excited about helping to empower new education types of well opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. It seems to me that the university is even getting unbundled, right? Because the university is basically a big, expensive bundle. And when you ask people typically afterward, how much of what you learned are you applying? It's a pretty low percentage, if anything, right? By making it smaller, in digestible chunks, things that are more focused on the job market. That seems to be a trend that's happening. Also witnessing lower enrollment rates in the United States and universities. Absolutely. Yeah, I think increasingly, you know, universities have traditionally been a signaling mechanism for hiring partners or employers that are looking to hire people straight out of, out of a program like an undergraduate degree. And definitely I benefited from it. I think you, you did as well. I don't think it was a bad thing for me to have done, but I think it was, it's a luxury education and it's a luxury that most people around the world can't afford, unfortunately. So making it, as you said, unbundling that, or as other people look at it as more kind of a stackable option where people can take those short courses, bump up their salary, get a job that that pays well and, and new career opportunities, and then maybe take another course or few as life, lifelong continuously is enabling new jobs open up in fields that people need to train for. And so getting that capability, whether that's after a university degree or without one, if you have the skills to do what is needed, then yeah, there'll, there'll be jobs available. But for those, especially as an example, again, coming back to Mexico, nearly 80% of students after high school don't generally study anything, giving them opportunities to get into the formal sector and get great job opportunities that 
that pay a multiple of what they would earn in driving an Uber or doing more manual labor, I think is a, is a great opportunity. And it's what we're increasingly driving towards and focused our are focusing our big business on. Yeah. So it seems that education or traditional higher education is almost overutilized in the United States, but underutilized in, in Mexico or in Latin America. Yeah. I think from some of the public schools in Mexico, from what I hear, reject 70% of the applicants. Your only option is paying for private education, tertiary education. And historically, as that's, that, that's been a more traditional university offering. And it's, I think, exciting to see the plethora of new opportunities that are becoming available to give people an on-ramp to, in, in many cases, tech-oriented jobs that are often remote, but not necessarily. But yeah, that, that really give a quick on, onboarding process to a well-paid job. And I think that has been missing and is part of why we've had, a, well, generations of people that have not had the opportunity to join yet. Yeah, traditional workforce. Yeah, it makes sense. And with my experience in Germany with public universities, they often have extremely strict exams in the first or second years because they only have that much budget. So they couldn't even funnel all these students through. So they have to meet like a quota of how many percent of the students they reject. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's challenging. It's difficult to get into. I don't know that definitely I see trends where traditional university admissions are declining in the US, even just a few percentage points at the moment. But because people have, in, have increasingly questioned the value of those degrees, especially if it's not a top school or a top program. And also we're talking about universities broadly. I mean, there are obviously a lot of different concentrations within universities that, that also have vastly different job prospects upon graduation. And I guess we power any type of financial aid, so loans, payment plans, income share agreements, and or scholarships. And I think income share agreements, where you align the interest of the school or the university or whatever that education provider is with the job outcomes of, of the students. And in some cases, investors are involved, so they're also aligned with the job outcomes of the students. Now, I see that as a positive. Even though definitely, I think from a, let's say, luxury education perspective, I loved the education that I had. And I, even though I don't necessarily use the, the undergrad biology courses that I took on a daily basis, I felt like it, it enriched my life in a variety of ways. But if, if the focus is how do we get people employment opportunities that they don't have access to, and for, I'd say the majority of applicants, their focus is that, that they want to get a job as quickly as possible then we should be training for that. And we should have schools and investors incentivized to help students meet their goals rather than longer, more traditional, as you said, large bundled offerings may not make as much sense as they once did. Can you talk a bit more about income share agreements? What are they and how can they solve the problem? Yeah. So an income share agreement is just essentially an agreement between the student and typically the school, but sometimes investors or um, foundations or financial institutions, whereby the student commits to taking the course and paying a portion of their salary when they get a job. So it's often advertised, don't pay anything until you get a job. And then in, in many cases, the, there is a premium in terms of what the student will need to pay eventually if they have a great outcome. And that's typically up to a cap. And that cap 
for instance, a lot of the programs that we manage is 1.3 times the cost of tuition. So that allows students to say, okay, I don't have to pay anything while I'm in school, which many students just can't afford to pay anything while they're in school because they're studying and not able to work. But when they graduate and get a good job, they're willing to pay, you know, 17% or other, sometimes more, sometimes less over a, of their income o- over a certain amount of time. And it may be that time ends after two, five years, whatever that time frame is, and they haven't paid up to the cap, but it, the rest is forgiven because the whole concept is you're again, aligning this, the schools and investors with the job outcomes of the students to help them focus on again, meeting, meeting the students' goals of get, getting a great job as quickly as possible. What are the challenges in establishing income share agreements? And maybe if you can talk a bit about the differences between maybe Spain, Mexico, and the United States. Absolutely. So income share agreements have been implemented for all types of tertiary education offerings. I would say the U.S. has had some legal issues around income share agreements. I think There were a number of ISA or income share agreement providers that were both on the school and on the lender side that that had a premium that was quite significant. So the cap was, for instance, two and a half times the cost of tuition that was, you know, the portion that the student, you know, financed with an income share agreement. That was the highest that I've seen. And that that was seen as abusive by students as, as well as some of the other kind of market participants. And I think caused a bit of a backlash. That was a university that, that, that was offering that. Obviously, students were still able to borrow traditional loans. It was just another offering that people could sign up for. But I think that kind of high cap, which might be problematic in the form of a loan because it might in certain states be considered as usury or just the interest was too high. But even more than that, a lot of ISAs, a number of ISAs, not a lot, a number of ISAs in the U.S. were a bit mismarketed, saying that it's not debt, that it's free. It might be a bit misleading. The Consumer Finance Protection Bureau or the CFPB in the U.S. saw it as misleading and essentially went after some of those groups that were not marketing it appropriately and or were not going through a trip. You know, we're saying it wasn't a, we're saying it wasn't a credit and weren't going through the kind of typical credit disclaimers, et cetera. That's in the U.S. And I think essays continue to be offered and utilized in the U.S. in, a, in an effective way for different programs. I think particularly coding boot camps and other, let's say, short term, high return on investment courses. It's still a very popular and trending, increasingly trending product. So you've seen Lambda School offer this. They raised you know, tens of millions. I think it was like over $70 million in venture capital money to essentially finance their ISA program and build out their business. That was replicated by a number of other coding boot camps, as well as there, there are a number of lenders do offer ISAs directly to students. But I think that the legal slash regulatory overhang in the U.S. is such that people are afraid to a certain extent or being advised by lawyers like, eh, you might want to steer clear of ISAs for now until things are clarified from a legal perspective. And California in particular took a kind of harder line with some of the ISA providers in the state. So yeah, it's, I would say not as popular. It was a very high growth product just a little over a year ago, and now it's less so in the US. However, internationally, we are seeing significant 
amount of growth and a lot of demand from our clients saying, hey, we would like to offer income share agreements. And I think a big part of it is just that value proposition of offering to students that you don't have to pay anything until you get a job. And then you only pay proportionally to what you're earning. That's a huge benefit if you're a student that hasn't had great jobs or you're unsure of what your salary is going to be after graduation. If the school is willing to say, hey, I'm going to bet on you, I'm going to invest in you, and I'm so sure that I'm going to get you a great job that I'm willing to cover the cost of this education program. And the other thing, coding boot camps and pretty much the whole education world went online during COVID, which has helped to drive costs down. And again, particularly in the shorter term courses which I think is a huge benefit to students, but also, yeah, in increasingly the costs for those programs are palatable, even on a payment plan basis. So it, what we generally recommend for our school clients is hey, allow people to pay up front, give them a payment plan that in school, make it a little bit more expensive for pay over time after school. And that could be often for the shorter term courses, it's 12, 24, 36 months. And then for the students that are just, risk adverse, or they'd rather just only pay when they're sure that they are able to get a job, they can take an income share agreement, which may have a slightly higher premium. Yeah, I like income share agreements. What I hope is that they can align interests between the students, the payer, and the employer better. You know, exactly. You have an incentive as someone who's funding student loans to give the students skills that actually land them a job so you get your money. And as a yeah. student, obviously, you want the best option for you. So you got the right provider. And as a, an employer, you this gives you good, a good signal because the funding partner, or I don't know how it works in the ecosystem, who does that, but they have to do like the right kinds of skill assessment and how well that matches with the current job market, which is something that is just not done right now. Universities are, at least in the United States, an extremely expensive investment over a long period of time. It is, yeah. You have to pay off loans afterwards and you're not matched and there's very little that's being done to match you with the job market so you get that's the right, right skills. Yeah, and I would say even a lot of graduate schools have the same dynamic, right? It's like, okay, you paid for this premium education and you got the degree, good luck. Whereas I think a lot of the shorter term courses that are really employment focused, you see a much, yeah, much bigger focus on helping students land those jobs as quickly as possible. We also have a, a software capability called Career Score, or it's a product that allows students to track their job search over time and share that information with their career advisors and any other mentors. And it's exciting to see a number of boot camps saying, hey, we want you to apply to 10 jobs a week. We're going to have calls every two weeks to judge your progress, see how we can help you kind of retarget your applications to make sure that you're maximizing your chances of getting a great job. The university that I went to, which was great, the graduate school that I went to, which I loved as well, they offered one-to-one -one meetings, but you know the digital capability, the tracking, they just don't have the data. They didn't have the data. Now, increasingly, they can have access to that. And I think that also helps. But again, without that incentive that the ISA provides, there's no real financial benefit to the school if you get a job sooner or later or a well-paid job. It's rankings are a plus. Make them put their money where their mouth is. I, that, I actually do love the ISA dynamic for that reason. You want to have the school yeah. invested in your success.
Yeah, to me, I seem exactly what I mean by a stranded technology. So it's something that would align interest much better, gives us much better outcomes, but we don't have it. And often it's for, so I would like to understand the regulatory story a bit better, why we don't see more of it yet. And I'm curious, I'm going to put two different stories forward. I'm curious which one you think explains it better, or maybe there's another story behind that. Yep. But what one is the story where we assume regulators and policymakers have kind of good intentions. So they're like seeing something. Yeah, <laughs> they're seeing something bad happening. Hey, here's right. this company that does fraudulent advertising and gives them very expensive and bad products. And you don't want that. So you want to make regulations to, you know, make it harder for these kinds of companies to operate. The problem with that is that by making it more expensive and increasing the fixed costs through more regulations, you actually have less companies competing for these services. Yeah. And that no, gives I... the existing companies more leeway to benefit from their status as being the accredited kind of entity. Yeah, I try to take a positive view on the regulators generally, although, yeah, sometimes maybe they put their own foot in their mouth and make it more difficult for businesses to to operate but yeah i think the us is really where we've seen legal issues and i don't i think it was yeah as you said problems with how it was advertised and marketed but it is still permitted and i think there is still interest in how it may be scaled in a more appropriate manner but like a loan a loan can be abusive or priced very well. And I think that the details matter. And even some of the lenders and the schools that were offering it appropriately priced income share agreements, maybe took a, a more aggressive marketing strategy than they should have. And it unfortunately caused a bit of a backlash that I think, you know, the US is going to take a few months or years to work through. But I think the product has proven to work very well for a, num a number of students and programs and will continue to be utilized in the U.S. and increasingly on a global basis. And you asked earlier about the difference in Spain and Mexico. We don't see legal issues related to income share agreements. Definitely, there's a little bit more work required on the loan servicing or versus loan servicing. ISA servicing is more intense because you have to verify people's income which is not necessarily an easy thing to do. And people have to self-report that income. And then you have to verify with tax-related information in some circumstances. So it can be a little bit more onerous. And the legal side of things, as well as the collection side of things, because it's new, it, hasn't, it doesn't have the track record that typical loan or payment plan collections processes would have. Even though it's fairly similar, there are some differences. And it just makes it as anything with, with anything new, it takes a bit of time for it to, for people to figure out the details of how to do it in different geographies. But definitely we don't see any legal issues and our lawyers have told us and many of our clients that it works perfectly. Well. That's a story that I hear often that actually in many Latin American countries, when it comes to education, there is a lot of kind of regulatory greenfield to operate it. So that makes it easier definitely. to scale innovation, which in the United States is unfortunately not always the case. Just for completeness sake, since I mentioned had two story, but let's assume the good intentions. But yes. the other story would have been that a lot of people, including the traditional institutions like the big universities are massively benefiting from the current yep. system. That's they right. offer a subpar product. 
and they don't want the competition to enter, which is a classic regulatory capture kind of situation. But putting that out there, but let's assume it's the better intention. Yeah, a lot of universities have now partnered with or launched their own boot camps, which, which are often not the main focus. But yeah, it's increasingly, I think it's just people are stuck in their old ways. Like you said, there's these kind of legacy institutions that have yeah, products that, that they've offered that are very similar to what they offered 20 years ago and may need to be updated, but there's not the drive if the government is handing out checks for people to take the courses, which they may not be doing for coding boot camps, which don't have the same track record and are brand new. So the government says, we're not sure if these are going to work. But if you look at the job outcomes, it's easy to see where the return on investment on the shorter term program may be much better. But it depends on the school. And students do have to do their own research. And I think that's a, another kind of takeaway is it's as a 17 or 18 year old, when you're graduating from high school, thinking like, okay, what am I going to do now? It's, oh, jump into this or co college. Everybody just assumes if you can get in, you'll go there. There are so many new options. And I think also technology oriented career, a lot of times high school students see it as a geeky thing to do and not all that interesting. And when I was in high school, I was I was like, oh, I don't want to be a programmer. It's staring at a computer all day. But that's what I do anyway. Mm -hmm. And if I had to, if I could go back or if I were a high school student now, I would, first thing I would do would be to take a coding boot camp, ideally in high school or just after or over the summer or just after, after college, if I had the chance. But, but yeah, then there is an opportunity to consider just doing a coding boot camp or other type of short course and jumping into the job market and then considering, hey, do I want a four-year degree or just like you said, do additional courses as it makes sense for me to do that. And for instance, we have programmers that have taken uh, some of the courses where we're working with our clients. They take a, a, let's say, more general full-stack coding bootcamp program, and then they take a Salesforce program, or then they take a blockchain-related bootcamp. There are a lot of different ways, but yeah, those are very kind of technical careers. There's also sales training, which really astonishingly high, yeah, astonishingly high salaries there. But yeah, that's not a, a traditional route. I don't think that the boot camps should necessarily replace universities. I see the university education as a luxury program, but one that is literally just not attainable for the masses around the world. And so what other opportunities are allowing those folks in addition to the people who graduate from a, or those that drop out of, of a university degree to have upward mobility without having to necessarily commit to a longer term program. Quick side comment. Sales is amazing because Absolutely. I was in sales and before I entered very reluctantly because it was seen as a, that's what car salesmen do. Sales sucks. But once, what is one thing you learn in many successful careers is the higher you go, the more sales you have to do. When you think of big partner positions in law firms or consulting firms, or even as a founder, most of your job is sales, right? Yeah, is, it is. Definitely. You know, selling ideas to others, products, you know, join my company. So all these are sales. So I would have loved the sales training too. I think mm -hmm. we would be much larger if I or my co-founder had done a, a sales bootcamp early on. 
or yeah. before we started the business. No doubt about it. So you mentioned that you're working with some universities and some universities are seem to be more progressive than others in adopting these new solutions. Do you want to give a couple of shout outs to some universities who are very forward thinking? Yeah, absolutely. Asade in Spain is the number one that I would shout out for in Spain. I think it's from my from what I've seen, it's the first university to offer their own income share agreement to students. And yeah, I think that program will be replicated with other universities that we're already in touch with. There, there are a lot of online universities, for instance, Southern New Hampshire University in the US, which is one of the top online universities. And they are now expanding on a global basis to translate all their content into Spanish and offer it at a lower cost all online on a global basis. And I think that's a trend that we've seen a lot of the larger players are heading in that direction. And it's actually exciting to see that clearly it's going to increase competition, drive costs down for students. I, I see it as hugely positive. It will disrupt, and you've already seen it starting to disrupt traditional degree programs. But also people are increasingly comfortable learning exclusively online. And I think over 50% of American students surveyed felt that the online degrees that they were taking were just as good uh, or better than the in-class degrees that they were getting, which I think is an astonishing statistic, but just lends to the fact that, yeah, online degree offerings, increasingly education is a global playing field. And we just aim to be the, the way that the, ed, those educators help. We, we aim to help them reach global markets with more affordable financing options. But I guess I'd also shout out to Fundación Universia in Spain, which is, it's a foundation but it's Banco Santander's foundation in Spain. And they have offered or offer a income share agreement for, yeah, for students in Spain to take coding boot camps, And it's been quite successful. And I think they're looking to expand that program. And we're talking with many other foundations around the world. And actually we should have a, an announcement. It's not public yet, but we just signed a deal with our first development bank client. So to, to serve low income or students from vulnerable backgrounds and also women that would like to get into more technical or technology oriented degrees with these boot camps in Mexico that I think is, a, is going to be a, a really trend setting program here in Mexico. But yeah, I, I, as soon as I can announce that, I will. Also side comment, it's often the case in many countries that aren't as developed, it's more women, a high percentage of women that goes into technical professions because it provides a good opportunity to advance in their career and in their status that's otherwise not available to them in many of their countries. Unfortunately, in Latin America, I think women have largely not been present in technology-oriented careers or been underrepresented, I guess is the right word. And uh, we hope that, that this program will allow more women to get into te technology-oriented careers. Yes, please. More women in tech. Last question. So there's, I see an emerging ecosystem of alternative ways of financing, micro degrees. So the big centralized system is getting more and more unbundled. What do you think are exciting areas for entrepreneurs to cover that aren't sufficiently covered yet? For that in that emerging ecosystem one i've heard recently is so artificial intelligence or ai training is pretty let's say I, I haven't seen many offerings and the demand for people with experience building or managing ai is huge i spoke with a bank last week 
that said that they wanted to hire 900 people for their AI build out. And uh, there, there just aren't that many people. There's a huge mismatch between the jobs that are being increasingly offered and the talent that is available to meet that. And I think AI training is a great opportunity for boot camps to expand into. Salesforce training, as uh, Salesforce continues to grow, the demand for developers that have some background in Salesforce is huge as well. And there's an opportunity that I haven't seen extremely well served. Salesforce does have their own training capability, but I think offered in a boot format might, might have more traction. There are some sales boot camps out there, but there's a lot more demand that, yeah, unmet demand for sales training, I think. Fantastic. Grant, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank I you. Think, I think we got some fantastic insights into the future of education. If you're an entrepreneur or an innovator or a policymaker and want to help us build the education system of the future, please join us for a conference on Roatan, Honduras on October 28 to 30. You go to infinitafund.com to find the conference. That's infinity just with an A. And let's build the future. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.